The Guardian. NFTs or non-fungible tokens are blowing up at the moment, but besides being fun to say, what are they? I'm Shivani Dave, and today on Science Weekly from The Guardian, we are going to explore exactly what NFTs are. There's been a lot of focus of NFTs allowing you to buy and sell ownership of digital art and music, like the latest Kings of Leon album. And it's all kept track of essentially in a ledger called the blockchain. Often high value sales of digital art of this kind will have really impressive headlines. Reporting the sale in dollars or pounds, currency that we know and use, but most of these sales actually take place with cryptocurrencies. Lots of people talk about NFTs as a way of democratising the media landscape and giving people ownership, which feels like a good thing. But there are downsides. We're talking about something which is um, roughly one thousandth of the energy used by the world is used by this sector, and it is not one thousandth of the entire economic activity of the world. So there's a lot to unpack. And if at this point you're reaching for the dictionary to try and dissect all of the jargon I've just used, don't worry. The Guardian's Alex Hearn is here to translate all of the tech talk. <laughs> of course. So where do we start? Fungibility as a concept is the idea of a substance where any individual example of it is completely and utterly substitutable for any other example of it. It's a term from economics and it's most obvious when you think through examples. The most obvious example, the most fungible thing in the world is money. Uh, a pound is a pound. And if I have a pound and give you a pound and ask for a pound back, I do not care if you give me the same pound back. In a world of digital money, that's not even a meaningful concept. If I transfer £100 to your bank account and you transfer £100 back to me, well, that that's just money. It is fungible. The same is true, though, for a lot of other goods that get traded in markets around the world. So oil is classically fungible. Wheat is fungible. At certain levels, even things like pork and beef are fungible. Everything else, everything that's not fungible is non-fungible. In the real world, that's actually you know most things that people interact with on a daily basis. But in the world of economics, it tends to be weirdly a minority pursuit. It's much easier to talk and think about, about fungible concepts because when you start dealing with economic items which are different from each other, things rapidly fall apart. You have to introduce some concept of, you know, the, the individual value of the individual object. And so when it comes to a non-fungible token, what we're doing is we're then taking that concept of fungibility and we are looking specifically at one technology that has uh, become mainstream in the last year or so, which is cryptocurrencies. Cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin being the most famous one, are, as the name would suggest, fungible. They are intended to be just like money. A Bitcoin is a Bitcoin is a Bitcoin. If I send you a Bitcoin and get one back, the idea is they're fungible. I haven't gained nor lost anything. Non-fungible tokens are different. It's a catch-all name for anything built on the same basic structure as Bitcoin which doesn't have that fungible aspect. The stuff that really led to non-fungible tokens getting exciting was when 
that whole world started interacting with uh, digital art, I suppose. What can actually be an NFT? I've seen art, I've seen tweets, I've seen memes, I've seen videos of basketball players slam dunking. What can be an NFT? Is there any real limit to that? The only real limit would be that it has to be represented digitally. Even that, obviously, uh, isn't a hard limit. There have been attempts to build things like NFTs that represent physical objects. But the problem is that for obvious reasons, if you're trying to create a digital asset which is tradable online and is linked to a physical object, then you run into the obvious problem. What happens if you trade away the digital asset but keep the physical thing? That disconnect is is less appealing. But broadly, NFTs have been explored in, like you say, in digital art, in music, in gaming. Some of the earliest promising NFTs were collectible card games. So the idea would be just like a game like Magic the Gathering or Pokemon cards, you would buy and you could trade them, sell them on, use them to play the game, liquidate your collection for cash when you got bored of it. And yeah, it would be a digital recreation of a a physical thing. Unfortunately, my Pokemon collection was never worth enough to to warrant liquidating into cash. (laughs) But this is sort of where it starts to get a bit confusing. If I owned a piece of art, say ambitiously, the Mona Lisa, (laughs) I would be the person who would own it. Other people could come look at it. They could take photos of it. But if I decided that I wanted to keep it locked away for only my enjoyment, I could do that. But with digital art, you can own it. But once it's a JPEG, what's stopping other people from infinitely copying that JPEG that I own? Right. And this is sort of the big question of NFTs, right? It's very easy to describe NFTs as um, a technology that lets you buy and sell digital art. But that's actually an oversimplification. What an NFT is, is more like... um, an infinitely tradable certificate of authenticity. It's not the art. The art itself, like you say, is a JPEG or a MP3 or a video file. Uh, That quite frequently has no concrete link to the NFT because storing information on the blockchain, uh, building the art into the NFT itself is fantastically expensive. The, the effectively the fees required to put things on the blockchain go up hugely the more you add to it. And if you were trying to store something as data heavy as even a single image, you would end up paying thousands upon thousands of pounds to do so. So instead, what the NFT tends to be is a link to the image, to the image which is stored somewhere else. What you actually own is a cryptographic asset, something which you can prove mathematically was created by an account, which you cannot prove mathematically, uh, is the account of the artist in question. If you accept that the artist created the initial NFT, then you do have a, a cast iron chain of ownership of that NFT from the artist through all intermediate sellers onto you, the current owner, and onwards further should you choose to sell it on. That's sort of an underwhelming and unsatisfying answer. It's hard to, to take it from there and and find the answer as to what people uh, see as the core value of this. If we actually answer that question, what is valuable about this whole world, 
it starts moving away from tech and into almost impossible questions of aesthetics and of the attribution of value for objects without use. Stepping back from the art side of things a little bit and about the technology, when you say NFTs are expensive, how are they expensive? Who are you paying and why are you paying them? So it's expensive in two ways. The first way is it's, it is expensive simply to create an NFT as an artist. Um, and that's because creating an NFT requires interacting with a blockchain, like you said. And that uh, typically for the vast majority of large scale NFT platforms, that blockchain is one called Ethereum, which is a successor to Bitcoin, probably the most successful successor to Bitcoin, which unlike Bitcoin has some features built into it from the start, which are designed to make it useful as a programmable currency. Bitcoin is almost entirely only useful for sending digital money across the internet. Ethereum, by contrast, can be reprogrammed for a bunch of purposes like making NFTs. But anytime you want to do something with the Ethereum blockchain, you have to pay a fee. That fee is called gas. And uh, it's it's quite a lot. Um, it, it is it's its cost depends on both the value of NFTs in real money and on how congested the NFT network is at any given time. But we're talking hundreds to thousands of pounds for any interaction with the network. That's not only for the the cost of registering your um, your token, but that's also, for instance, the cost of placing a bid on an auction for an NFT. That's the cost of trialing out uh, creating tokens as an experiment before you make your real one. Anything really that gets baked onto the blockchain has those large gas fees. The larger money that's been floating around this sector, of course, isn't from the artists, it's to the artists. And that is, uh, you know, that's the 69 million that Beeple gets paid for his NFT that he sells with Christie's to someone else who is uh, a big player in the crypto ecosystem. And when there's millions floating around, the prospect of losing a few hundred or thousand pounds as an artist to experiment with the field is, is quite tempting. Does it really make sense as to what does well in the crypto art world? <laughs> Obviously, you mentioned people who sold a... A piece of NFT art for a, I think it was something like 69 million US dollars. Um, it's quite a lot of money, but how does that happen? Because before that, people had only really sold anything for about 100 US dollars. Well, this is what I mean, right, about with NFTs, you rapidly descend into conversations of abstract value. When it comes to the, the tech of NFTs, I can tell you what Beeple sold, right? Beeple sold a cryptographic asset that he stated represented ownership of uh, a digital file that was hosted off the blockchain that was the sum total of his uh, works to date. That's what he sold. Whether or not you personally view owning that cryptographic asset as equivalent to owning a work of art is already an open question. Some people who firmly believe that cryptocurrencies are the new economy will view a cryptographic version of a certificate of ownership as exactly the same as owning a piece of digital art. Other people will look at it and go, but, but wait, you mean 
I own this art, but it still lives on the internet and anyone can look at it and I can't control its use. And all I have is the certificate, not the art itself on my hard drive. And it's like, yes, that is also true. And that's just the that's just the ground level discussion, because on top of that, we have the entire history of abstract discussions of art aesthetics to deal with. Why is people's art worth 69 million? Some of it is because it's good. Some of it is because it's popular amongst rich people. Some of it is because it's being sold as an NFT and is being sold as one of the first NFTs to be sold by a large auction house. And that alone gives it a certain value, a certain cachet, a certain place in history. At the same time, again, it's worth noting that uh, the reason why it sold for $69 million is partially because 69 is a funny number because it sounds like a sex position. And that's genuinely how a lot of the people who move in this circle think and place bids. It's the same sort of thinking that led to Elon Musk tweeting that he was taking Tesla private at $420 because that's a number that has a reference to weed culture. This whole world is very, very, very silly at the same time as being worth billions upon billions of pounds in real money and moving real financial markets. Right. So it's really interesting that you mentioned Elon Musk because over the weekend, Elon Musk tweeted that Tesla has suspended vehicle purchasing using Bitcoin. We've established that Bitcoin and NFTs are using the same technology. Elon's reasoning, Elon as they were pals, Elon Musk's reasoning suggests that they are concerned about the rapidly increasing use of fossil fuels for Bitcoin mining and transactions, especially the coal that it uses. The word blockchain comes up, we've used it a couple of times. And from my understanding, blockchain is sort of a super secure ledger that is used to keep track of transactions. Um, Bitcoin uses it, other cryptocurrencies use blockchain, and NFTs use blockchain. Is that right? Broadly, yes. The way I would always begin it is to say that the first blockchain was the Bitcoin blockchain, and it was created to solve a genuine problem, which is the seeming impossibility of having a decentralized digital currency. It's that decentralized nature that's crucial to to how blockchains work and why they are what they are. Before Bitcoin, if you wanted to send money to someone over the internet, you had to do it through a centralized trusted body, something like PayPal. And that was because the way you would send money would be PayPal would have a record of how much money everyone on PayPal had. And if I sent money to you, it would say Alex has less money and and he's sent the money over. Um, That works because there is a trusted central body. But if you're a certain type of person on the internet, you don't like a trusted central body because trusted central bodies censor things. Trusted central bodies give power to governments. Trusted central bodies enact regulation. And so if you're trying to build something that is decentralized, something that is censorship resistant, you need a way for person A to send cash to person B without there being any centralized record of how much cash person A and person B has. And that's quite hard because without any centralized record of how much money anyone has, how do you know I'm not just going to go around and tell everyone I'm sending them money? And then who do they check with to know I even have that cash? The solution that Bitcoin came up with and the reason why blockchains exist is effectively that every single person in the network has a record of how much cash every single person in the network has. And every 10 minutes, everyone in the network has a vote on whether 
they're okay. Whether they accept, that's the consensus mechanism that makes Bitcoin work. The next problem is if you try and have a vote without a trusted central authority online, how do you make sure everyone has a fair number of votes? How, how do you stop someone from just setting up an infinite number of accounts on Bitcoin and voting for their own corrupt version that says they have all the cash? Well, the way you do that with Bitcoin and with most blockchains is something called proof of work. Effectively, you burn electricity to do pointless calculations. For every pointless calculation you do, you get effectively one vote. And the people who win the votes at the end of every 10-minute chunk get paid money to compensate them for the electricity they burn. That process is the process called mining, which you may have heard of if you've read or heard much about Bitcoin. And the upsides to that are it does let you build a secure, decentralized currency that has no centralized authority. The downside is mining burns an astronomical amount of power for the Bitcoin network as a whole. It's burning the same amount of power as the uh, 28th most power hungry country in the world. If we're talking about NFTs and we're talking about the blockchain and you use Bitcoin as an example of, of one of the blockchains, NFTs aren't Bitcoin. So how did the two add up? NFTs aren't Bitcoin. And some NFTs aren't even built on proof of work at all. But most NFTs are still sitting on a large, mature proof-of-work blockchain. That's the Ethereum blockchain. Ethereum is slightly smaller than Bitcoin, has a slightly lower market cap, and as a result, its carbon emissions, its power drain, are slightly smaller. But they're still very, very high. They're very, very high as a proportion of economic activity in the world. We're talking about something which is um, roughly one thousandth of the energy used by the world is used by this sector, and it is not one thousandth of the entire economic activity of the world. It's tricky, right? Because an individual NFT being minted is a single transaction on the on the network. And how do you apportion the energy cost of an entire network to a single transaction on it? One way is just by dividing the, the, you know, the amount of energy used by the entire network by the number of transactions. Another way might be to say, well, are these transactions common enough that they're driving the high price of Ethereum that drives people to burn electricity? It's true that NFTs are unlikely to drive the energy consumption of the Ethereum network up or down at the margin, because compared to the wild speculation on the value of the currency, as a whole, that they don't really have an effect. They are effectively offcuts from this larger speculative economy. But at the same time, if you think astronomical amounts of carbon being emitted uh, for an economy which still has effectively no real-world benefits, it's an economic playground right now. If you think that's uh, bad, <laughs> then being involved with it carry some of that badness. I don't think there's a, a rhetorical trick to get out of the fact that playing in the NFT space gives a seal of approval to the emissions that the wider cryptocurrency uh, world creates. Thanks to The Guardian's technology correspondent, Alex Hearn, for all of the insights in this episode. 
If you want to know more about NFTs and digital art, check out the links in the podcast's webpage at theguardian.com. And if you've got any programme ideas, thoughts or feedback, get in touch at scienceweekly at theguardian.com. In the next episode, Anand Jagatia will be exploring the potential that humans have altered the planet so significantly that we have entered a new period in the Earth's history. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.